Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday morning, March 28th, at least um, Monday morning on the west coast of the United States. Monday morning, March 28th, 2022. Not a particularly cheerful month, certainly given what's been going on in Ukraine. Monday mornings are, of course, I'm guessing if uh, we did some formal research, Monday mornings are the least happy time of the year. We all have to, or not happy time of the year, happy time of the week. We all have to Go back to work. We don't like work, or some people suggest at least we don't like work. It doesn't make us happy. We're going to be talking a little bit about happiness today. A couple of weeks ago, I thought we had a a wonderful show with the Wall Street Journal writer, um, Catherine Sayre. She's the co-author of a new book about the Zappos founder, Tony uh, Shea. Uh, who we called on Lit Hub uh, Silicon Valley's saddest evangelist of happiness. Uh, she has a book, a new book out, um, a, a, a biography of Shay, who now, of course, has died. Happy at any cost. Shay was also a best-selling author. He had a book called "Delivering Happiness: A Path to Profits, Passion, and Purpose." Appropriately enough, if you're watching this, you see the page on Amazon. He sold Zappos to Amazon for several hundred million dollars and to seem to make him particularly happy. The issue of happiness is one. I also talked with the very successful business writer Keith Ferrazzi about uh, last week. He has a new book out, Competing in the New World of Work. He seems to think that work can make us happy. I brought up Shay and he was a little irritated, I think, with the fact that I was somewhat critical of him. Uh, uh, Farazi is behind or one of the people behind the Tony Shea Award, seeking out progressive, value-driven leaders, innovators, and entrepreneurs who embodies Shea's spirit in business. Uh, It was a remarkable man, Shea, but I think he was anything but happy. That was his struggle, uh, his curse in many ways. When I was talking to Catherine, uh, in the show, um, Catherine Sayre. She recommend that I talk to my guest today, uh, Daniel Horowitz. Um, he's a very distinguished cultural historian of, uh, of American capitalism, I guess. Uh, he had a book out called Happier, The History of a Cultural Movement that Aspired to Transform America. Uh, Daniel has another book out about uh, Shark Tank, which I want to also talk about today. But let's begin uh, with Daniel talking about happier. Daniel is talking to me from one of the centers of happiness, Daniel. Pasadena, California, that song, It Never Rains in California, it pours, Southern California, it pours. What's the connection between California and happiness or our striving, our struggle for happiness? Well, that's certainly uh, um, perhaps cliche about uh California. Uh, I remember an undergraduate teacher of mine who said that if you took the uh, map of the United States uh, and took it, took, put it on its end so that uh, New England was at the top and California at the bottom, and you shook it, all the nuts and bolts, nuts especially, would end up in California. 
I mean, that's certainly uh, people talk about that. I'm not sure there's any evidence uh, that people are happier uh, in uh, uh, California. They want to be happier, though, Daniel, isn't one oh, of yeah. the great industries of Southern California um, in a cultural sense, perhaps even Hollywood, the striving to be happy? Well, I think both Southern and Northern California. I mean, the Silicon Valley is uh, certainly a place where a lot of happiness has been generated and, and programs that help people achieve that. Uh, and Southern California, watching the Oscars last night, not always happy with the uh, Will Smith, Chris Rock uh, incident. Uh, but certainly I, I watched some of it and it is compelling. They are, are in some ways our American heroes. And uh, so much of the iconography of the Oscars is about celebration and happiness and spreading that around the world. You are an investigator, an academic investigator of that iconography of happiness, the the cultural economy of America. And as I said, uh, your book, Happier, was strongly recommended by um, by Catherine Sayre, saying that she really relied on the book, in a sense, uh, to make sense of Shay's striving for happiness. Uh, in this book, it's an Oxford University Press book, Daniel, you make this American story of happiness, this striving for happiness, central in some ways to post-war capitalism. Why and how? Well, it uh, it, it has, uh, the interest in happiness obviously has deep roots elsewhere, uh, going back at least to Aristotle. Uh, and uh, But it, it is such a powerful uh, notion in post-war America, as you uh, noted. I think of Norman Vincent Peale uh, in the mid-50s, the power of positive thinking, a minister who actually officiated at the first marriage of Donald Trump. Uh, but the notion that if you think positively, I think a very American notion, that if you think positively, if you get up in the morning uh, as Peale advised and write down three reasons to be happy or four things you're going to do today, that will make you happy, you will actually be happy. That the power of thinking positively, uh, in, even in the face of terrible obstacles, uh, can transform you or enhance you as a happy person. I think it is a very American thing, although, as you may know, in studies of what nations are happiest, it's not the United States. The U.S. Uh, is fairly far down the list, and the countries of Northern Europe uh, the Scandinavian countries and the Netherlands seem to be those where people are happiest. The Danes always show up on top, Daniel. We've Absolutely. seen this in so many ways on the show. It's very hard to be a Dane, though, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I'm always I'm skeptical as a historian about survey data. Uh, it pretends to be very scientific. It is very careful and rigorous. Uh, but uh, so much depends on how you ask people questions. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Whenever I have people, when I'm talking to them on the, on the show, whenever they say the data proves it, I know by definition that it doesn't and that they're and that's being why polemical, you, for better or worse. If you go back to the title of the, uh, the uh, excuse me, the book jacket of my book, you'll see I put a question mark, I insist on it, uh, at the end, because uh, as a historian, although I'm very impressed by much of the work that uh, promoters of happiness uh, have done, I'm skeptical. 
uh, and that's uh, historians are naturally skeptical about claims other people make, uh, as you said, about, oh, it's based on rigorous scientific data. We surveyed thousands of people, and this is our con these are our conclusions. Uh, I'm skeptical. I'm always a, a skeptical, but it's good to be skeptical about uh, claims uh, that are so powerful and universal. That's why you're on the show, Daniel. I don't have anyone on the show who isn't skeptical. What do you make of this Tony Shea character? He's become, uh, he's been mythologized in, in Silicon Valley, in Las Vegas. Clearly a, a complicated, very talented man. What do you make of his striving for happiness and his attempt to collect, to collapse entrepreneurial success, the nature of his company Zappos, the the art, what we might think of as the architectural utopianism of holacracy and happiness. It, it, it's a lot to swallow, isn't it? It is indeed. And your viewers may know that uh, as he developed uh, Zappos, uh, he instituted a whole series of procedures, uh, starting with interviews um, of potential employees uh, and then having seminars and lectures uh, in Las Vegas uh, about happiness. And this is part of a larger movement you see, especially in tech uh, companies, to have a vice president uh, for happiness or, or well-being. It's a tragic story. Uh, uh, I'm sure the book uh, you've recommended will reveal it, the, his death uh, at the back of a house in a small house on the Connecticut shore, in, uh, on the Long Island shore in Connecticut, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to turn a personal tragedy into a cultural moment, uh, but it's, uh, his is not only the only case uh, of someone who promoted happiness whose own life was not uh, so happy. A terrible tragedy. When anyone... what do you, what's your interpretation of somebody like Tony Shea, who clearly was unhappy, who clearly was lonely? not really suited to um, not really suited to conventional social relations. What do you make of this fetishization, this con this um, consumerization almost of, of, of the or commodification of happiness? Oh, it's a major theme in my book. I have a chapter called the business of happiness. I'm fascinated by, I mean, your readers can go Google and they can buy bracelets or or pens or five-day courses or vacations that focus on happiness. It has become uh, an immense business underwritten by foundations, especially the Templeton Foundation outside uh, Philadelphia, uh, underwritten by federal government uh, programs that have uh, sponsored research into happiness um, because it might be uh, less expensive for people to become happy uh, by uh, reading a book or uh, 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 practicing meditation than it would be by major surgery. I, commodification of happiness, it's big business. It's uh, one of the things that fascinated me in writing the book was how so many of the scholars who, serious, uh, well-recognized scholars who write about happiness are always crossing, or often not always, crossing the border between scholarship and 
uh, the kind of thing that uh, Power of Positive Thinking did. You read these uh, books by scholars, major scholars, and at the end of a chapter, it'll say, now write down three reasons to be happy or write down four things you're going to do today uh, that will express your happiness. Uh, it's a Amer very American thing, I think, although not confined to America, uh, to turn, that's uh, why I use the word cultural movement, to turn uh, scholarship, science, uh, into a, com a commodified product. You, as I said, uh, are a historian, cultural historian of American capitalism. And alongside Happier, you've written The Anxieties of Affluence, uh, Consuming Pleasures, uh, The Morality of Spending. Where do you situate yourself in the traditions of making cultural sense of capitalism? Are you a follower of Max Weber, his theory of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism? Or are you more sympathetic to modern American critics like Christopher Lash or perhaps the European tradition, particularly of the Frankfurt School? Well, who, who has influenced you most in terms of making sense, cultural, psychological sense of capitalism? Oh, I think the Frankfurt School more than Weber or uh, certainly Lash. I write about Lash uh, in, in one of my books. You know, I'm a historian and... Uh, I hate to say it, but as a historian, I build things from the ground up. A different don't academic. hide behind history, though. You know, you you've got an agenda like everybody else, like sure. the data people too. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I, I. Well, we talked about skepticism earlier. I'm clearly on the left, not the far left. I'm uh, skeptical about, uh, although admiring much of what capitalism has done. Uh, I'm skeptical about. Uh, it's larger cultural claims. Uh, the the book on entertaining entrepreneurs uh, is uh, an expression of that. Uh, I and we'll come to that after the break. It's it's, sure. it's a very interesting thesis in this. Yes, book. but you want to go ahead. No, but but go back to the Frankfurt School. We we had a kind of diluted. We're all. We're all, uh, I, I think of some of my own writing as kind of Marcuse for idiots or, or, or Adorno for idiots. But um, we had a, a show particularly recently with uh, an English writer, John uh, Alexander, called Citizens, Why the Key to Fixing All of Us. Um, yeah, sorry, Why the Key to Fixing Everything is All of Us. It's, it was a show about how we can turn ourselves from consumers into citizens. I think Alexander is very much in the Frankfurt School tradition, although without the the Marxist mumbo jumbo. Um, do you think that people like Alexander are right, that the biggest crisis of modernity is that we've been taught to think of ourselves as consumers rather than citizens, and the Americans have done a better job than anyone with this? Oh, I'd love to read that book, yes. Uh, You'll have to read it. I think you will enjoy it, actually. Yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I, you know, I'm fascinated by uh, either the, the decline of the public or the way the public uh, has been uh, marginalized. This is since the 1970s. I think central to uh, my most recent work is, uh, as someone who uh, shaped by the 1960s, uh, central to my most recent uh, work is the sense that 
starting in the late 60s, but really accelerating in the 70s. It was a major turn in America and elsewhere, away from uh, a robust uh, commitments to social welfare and a turn to the marketplace of everything, uh, turning everything into a, a consumable item. Not that there Neoliberalism, are... is that uh, one I, word I, to describe all that? We have a, a show actually later this week with Gary Gerstel as a new book out, The Rise and Fall of of, of of the Age of Neoliberalism. I'm sure you're familiar with Gerstel's work as another historian. I am. Uh, yes, I mean, that's a word. In, in some ways, the my most recent uh, work is all about neoliberalism, although it's a very controversial term. Uh, but yes, absolutely. And the, the change from the, the transformation of everything into marketability, uh, not not social government, not social welfare, but the marketing of the self and the, uh, mm. the celebration of the market. Absolutely. Yes. I, I think that's that's the best way to situate uh, my work uh, as a critique of that. So the happiness is, uh, you know, its most important uh, promoter, Martin Seligman at Penn, uh, talks about our being in a Florentine moment. This is before COVID, but uh, uh, um, unlike any period uh, in, uh, since the 17th, 16th century, uh, a Florentine moment, wonderful uh, ki kind of uh, time where everything seems possible. I just don't see it that way. Uh, the acceleration of inequalities of wealth and income, uh, the rise of globalization of new technologies that uh, isolate us, all of that. Uh, I don't want to paint too grim a picture, but that certainly is central to how I see things. Yes. We like grim pictures on Keenan, Daniel. That's why you're on. We want some. We want someone to pop the balloon of happiness, and you're one of America's leading historians who have done that. I'm going to take a short break, Daniel, and then afterwards I want to talk specifically about your latest book, uh, Entertaining Entrepreneurs, which is a, a cultural critique of, of Shark Tank. I've been waiting for this kind of book, and, uh, and I want to talk more about the book and, and your interpretation of Shark Tank and why it is so symbolic of, of the broader crisis of neoliberalism in American capitalism. So we'll be back in 60 seconds with Daniel Horowitz, the author of Happier with a question mark and Entertaining Entrepreneurs. Don't leave us. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at 
AJ Keen. You can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Daniel Horowitz, the author of Entertaining Entrepreneurs, as well as a number of other important cultural critiques and investigations of contemporary American capitalism. Um, I want to talk, we, we talked broadly before the break about happiness uh, and success. Uh, I want to talk about your latest book, Entertaining Entrepreneurs, Reality TV Shark Tank, and the American Dream in Uncertain Times. Um, I think this book is essential, um, absolutely essential, uh, Daniel. Uh, we need a, a cultural critique of Shark Tank. It's one of the most offensive shows I think I've ever seen. What is it about Shark Tank that required you to write a serious book about it? Well, I have to confess at the outset, when I'm bored or a little sleepy in the middle of the afternoon and want to take a break, I do so by watching television. My wife thinks this is a terrible habit I have. Yeah, but you're doing it for professional reasons. I oh, absolutely. Uh, but that's how I entered into it. Um, Shark Tank, as you know, is a product of an entrepreneurial genius himself, Mark Burnett, a Brit who comes to America uh, and uh, who created, invented uh, and pioneered reality television broadly. That's right, Survivor, for example. Uh, and Shark Tank is a perfect exemplification of uh, a neoliberal vision of the world. Uh, that is, here you have, even though the claim is to rely only on yourself, in fact, these pitchers, as I call them, and others call them, that is, the people who appear on the show. Uh, are relying on experts, on wealthy five, six uh, wealthy, uh, successful entrepreneurs. Yeah, and particularly, and, and, and they are constructed as, uh, as reality television characters. There's Barbara Corcoran, who's the nice one. Uh, Kevin O'Leary, who's the really awful one. Uh, Robert Herjavec, who's the sort of good-looking, stupid one. Uh, so it's, it's classic reality television, isn't it? Absolutely. Highly staged and curated, uh, probably a staff of 100 people uh, used to create it uh, and edited and using music and all sorts of tricks. Uh, what you see on television is not what happened either on the stage or happened afterwards. Uh, but it is a perfect example of the promise of the American dream uh, if you could just uh, invent a new way of cooking hamburgers. Right. But uh, it's the culture, uh, above all else, and I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley, uh, yes. and I'm a, a many times failed entrepreneur, entrepreneur myself, it, 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 it captures the cult, the ideological cult of the startup entrepreneur better than anything else I've ever seen. 
Uh, absolutely, no question about it. it turns these uh, five or five people on any show, but six standard people into a heroic, inventive, brilliant people uh, who, if you follow their advice and uh, take their money, will transform you also uh, into an immensely wealthy person. The market rules. Uh, if you uh, don't rely on government, uh, it's not, or don't uh, go and work for a big corporation, all of that is uh, not very helpful. It's not going to lead you to success. Only by coming on the show and pitching your wonderful idea uh, and then partnering with us will that be possible. Absolutely. I'm a little disappointed um, that you're not, or you say you're not a Viberian, because it seems to me that shows like, Shark Tank or a show which captures everything fraudulent about startup capitalism like American capitalism, like Shark Tank, speaks of the spiritual vacuum because it's a religious show, isn't it? I mean, it's the equivalent for the entrepreneurial community of, uh, of, of, of evangelical television. I never thought of it that way, but I think that's immensely helpful. It, like... Uh like the world of happiness is uh, very much involves a cult a sense of the if you think of these uh, six people as uh, half of the um, 12 apostles uh they are yeah, the i like people. that that's great yeah they and they look like apostles too or at least modern day apostles yes and if you, uh, they are heroic transcendent uh and and they transform material longings into spiritual goods that's uh, to, to follow your suggestion so why uh, why isn't weber more important than uh, marcuse or adorno who were just entirely dismissive of contemporary capitalism hmm, i'd have to go back and read my weber I, you know just in my education uh, Antonio Gramsci was probably even bigger influence on me. Yeah, but Gramsci wrote about power, didn't write about meaning. That's right. Uh, and uh, I go from uh, power to meaning and try to figure out how these six powerful people uh, or promoters of happiness uh, uh, seek power or achieve power by promoting a sense of meaning uh, in a world that is so fraught with danger. It's not just fraught with danger, it's meaningless. We had um, another excellent sociologist, uh, uh, UC Berkeley, Carolyn Chen, on the show recently. She has, a, a, again, a, an important new book out, uh, Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. Very much a, a compliment, I think, to some of the work you're doing. Yes. Um, she suggests that because of this, profound, if that's the right word, profound spiritual vacuum in American society, people are treating work as if it is faith. The office has become a religion, whether you work from home or go in. This is being pioneered in Silicon Valley, but she suggests you also find it in banks on both the East and the West Coast. What do you make of Chen's thesis? Well, the happiness scholars make a distinction between a job, a career, and a calling, Right, uh, right. Which and, is deeply Weberian as well, of course. That's right. So calling is, it's a religious term. You are called by God or by a supreme being to be in this world and to achieve this. Uh, so that makes a, a lot of, of sense to me. I must say, in terms of Silicon Valley, 
that one of the most important entrepreneurs is has the same name as my son. Uh, both are Ben Horowitz of Horowitz and Yes, Horowitz. yes, I know Ben Horowitz, who yeah. is the partner of the king of Silicon Valley or the crown prince, Mark Andreessen. That's right. That's right. And, I, you know, the, the, I, you, you are closer physically to it than I. Uh, but this is this is a cult. This is a cult with its uh, with its heroes, with its faith, with its, as you're saying, its restoration of meaning uh, in a world that seems to be nothing but chaotic and meaningless. And Horowitz, I think, has talked publicly about his own mental struggles. Andreessen seems the most miserable of people. I'm not sure what he's like. I don't know him privately, but publicly, right. he's always angry. Um, there seems to be a, you know, in this industry of happiness, there's an enormous amount of amount of suffering and unhappiness. Um, we did a show last week with uh, the, the the New York Times uh, writer John Markov. Just has a new book out on Stuart Brand. Yes, uh, called Whole Earth. Stuart Brand is the original Silicon Valley visionary. Sort of lived his whole life on the edge. Um, and one of the interesting things I thought in the Markov book, I didn't know this about Brand. I've met Brand. He's actually quite a nice guy. But um, what Markov notes is how Brand himself struggled with mental illness, with unhappiness. So it, it, it's, it's, again, unsurprisingly ironic that the, the builders of happiness, whether it's Tony Shea or Stuart Brand or Mark Andreessen, they all seem incredibly miserable. Uh I, I know how strong that strand is. It's, it's uh, not the only, they're not the only examples you mentioned, but it does strike me that that um, the world of Shark Tank projects. Uh, who knows what the private lives of these people are uh, really like? But uh, any guesses? I mean, what do you think these people are actually like in private? I have no idea. I am like you, fascinated by how each of them has constructed or been constructed as an iconic figure, each of them with a distinctive personality, right? And we see that played out on the show. It, that show uh, uh, does not convey any reservations about the achievement of happiness and success. Uh, there are some people who are ushered, pitchers who are ushered off immediately uh, and made fun of, uh, but by and large, it does project this confidence uh, in America. They throw around the word, the phrase uh, "American Dream" all the time, uh, without, to me, uh, giving any sense of what it actually means. Uh, it's such a convenient um, uh, moniker uh, to use, um, but I, it, it's, I have no idea what their private lives are like. Um, and I'm not sure that's uh, relevant. I don't. Uh, anyway, go ahead. I, w I wonder, um, in terms of your work on American capitalism, uh, entertaining entrepreneurs, the anxieties of, uh, of affluence, consuming pleasures, the morality of spending, whether we can construct or reconstruct a new kind of American religion built around... Um, the fetishization of innovation. Why the obsession with innovation? What is it about this word, the I word, Daniel, that makes it so compulsive, so addictive, so dangerous? 
I go back to uh, Schumpeter, the German emperor. Oh, we forgot about him, another important figure in all this. Absolutely. And the notion of creative destruction, uh, uh, something he articulates in the 1940s. And that's what all this is about. This is uh, innovation involves pain, which you really don't talk about. Uh, creative destruction means that you you're at best living in a society that is so fluid and open that you can destroy something and create something in its place. Uh, and that that's what drives American society. I think innovation and the sense of open possibilities, endless frontiers, however you want to see it, is central to how uh, many people define America. Uh, and yes, I innovate the... <laughs> I think of some of the offerings on um, on Shark Tank, and it is all about how a small thing, a uh, a scrub brush uh, that I think it's Lori Grenier or Barbara Corcoran uh, supports um, uh, or invests in, uh, how this will change your life. It'll change the life of the entrepreneurs because they will be innovative and they will be creative. It's creativity, endless possibilities the American dream and all of that. And I, I the subtitle of the Entertaining Entrepreneurs is on Uncertain Times. Uh, all times are uncertain. Yeah, I don't mm. like that. Uncertain. No, yeah, everyone always has uncertain times. You're when not, when, is, when have we only, ever lived in certain times? You're not the only one who questioned that. But that we this seems an especially perilous uh, time uh, for us um, since the 1970s. I mean, I grew up in a, uh, household shaped so profoundly by the New Deal and the immigrant experience of my grandparents uh, and uh, my father as an entrepreneur. Um, and I, that sense of confidence that uh, that I had in the 19, early 1960s, uh, history seems to have shattered, not just for me, that's not important, but for so many Americans. And I think the, the way of getting out of that uh, the promise of getting out of that is by happiness, by entrepreneurship, by owning a, a house. Uh, yeah, I wonder, Daniel, you're a cultural historian of American capitalism. I've had so many shows where people have basically said the same thing as you. As we've lost the real America, profound decline, ideology of consumption, loneliness, unhappiness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Gary Gerstle's coming on the show later this week talking about the, the, the decline, at least in his view, of neoliberalism. I wonder whether Hollywood or the entertainment industry will finally recognize the shift in the zeitgeist and we could have an equivalent to Shark Tank uh, about the need to go back to the New Deal, to the Great Society, to Teddy Roosevelt, to, to, to many of the other themes. Do you think that this is a possibility in your afternoon television watching? Have you found any shows that are creatively nostalgic for another America, or an America entirely different from the scam of Shark Tank with its promise of infinite wealth for innovation? Well, I'm very skeptical that we can go back to uh, that. I wish it would happen. I, we are uh, so far away from that right now. I do think, and I'll have to listen to what Gary says, I do think we are at a moment when 
uh, neoliberalism is uh, on the line. Uh, I think of the movie Parasite, uh, which won the... Yeah, Academy. but that was a Korean movie. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but it, it did win the Academy Award for the best... Uh, first one, first foreign language film to win the best picture. Um, I'm not sure it has a positive vision, but it certainly has a negative one about class relationships uh, and the collapse of real estate as a hope. And I know you've got a book coming out, um, uh, Daniel, in the fall on, on, on real estate and consumer culture. Maybe we'll come back on the show to talk about that in the fall. Um, sure. Finally, though, uh, in addition to your relatively new book, um, Entertaining Entrepreneurs, Reality TV Shark Tank and the American Dream and Uncertain Times and your upcoming book on real estate. What else should people be reading in what you have so famously called Uncertain Times? Well, I, the book the, that I've read most recently that uh, terrifies me but also educates me is by Timothy Snyder. I don't know if you've ever had him. Yeah, we've had Snyder on the show. He's yeah. good. And the book, The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, yeah. Europe, uh, and America. Boy, it's a terrifying uh, book. Um, as you know, a Yale historian, an expert on uh, Eastern Europe, uh, and that book puts together with exacting research uh, a terrifying picture of really of Russia's uh, expansionary authoritarianism uh, that we see now playing out in Ukraine, but also in the 2016 election. That, yeah, and if you want to be really terrified, uh, his follow-up book on the American medical system is even more terrifying. And it's another subject we could have talked about today about how the American medical system buys into this as well. But certainly Schneider is a a, a very important and, 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 and coherent and erudite writer. Uh, finally, yeah. Daniel Horowitz, the author of Entertaining Entrepreneurs. Daniel, um, you've been writing your whole life about American capitalism, cultural interpretations. Uh, in March 2022, on a, a cheerless Monday morning in late March, who runs the world, Daniel? Who's in charge these days? Well, I, it's hard to avoid the subject, for me, to avoid the subject of Ukraine right now. Uh, I remember oh, 20 years ago walking the streets of Paris and saying to myself, on these streets in 1940, uh, uh, 44, 45, fought out uh, German and French uh, relations in violent and terrifying ways. And I said to myself at that time, I can't imagine in Western Europe uh, a war breaking out. And here we are uh, at, at this perilous moment. Uh, uncertainty doesn't begin to, uh, to capture it. Who runs the world? I think that's the struggle we're facing, watching, terrified. Uh, in Ukraine right now. I'm pretty impressed by how well Biden has done in rallying uh, uh, NATO countries uh, and more broadly. Uh, I wish I could be more hopeful about the future. Um, uh, historians are notoriously bad about predicting the future, so I don't think I will venture.